You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral, and you can go to YouCan'tBeNeutral.com, where you'll find all the back episodes. You'll also find some links. You'll find a link there to send me a message. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece written by Trevo Craw, and this piece is published at thyblackman.com. Critical race theory, CRT, a Harvard law developed legal theory that expresses U.S. social institutions, for example, the criminal justice system, labor market, housing market, and healthcare system are laced with racism embedded in laws, regulations, rules, and procedures that lead to differential outcomes by race. And that these issues must be admitted to, confronted, and exposed if real equality is to ever exist. But many Caucasian Americans do not want that equality to ever happen. Many African American mental slaves have no idea what it would look like, so they fear it. Simply put, the theory examines that all these systems have stacked the deck against, quote, minorities based on racism, placing people of color at a disadvantage in almost every core area needed for us to succeed. And you know what? That is true. So even if it may not seem that way to you, the reality in America for us as a people is not determined by your personal experiences, nor mine. Yet the numbers overall do not lie, and now much of the Caucasian community is in an uproar because they expect us to, quote, hush up about that truth, N-word, forget the truth, or take your handouts and be quiet, boy. Still, for those of us who are fully awake, we know Obama was just a placebo, and we saw under Trump that America is still foundationally racist. America has learned very little but learned how to cover up quite a lot, all while ostracizing those who speak the truth. The African-American community is criticized by its oppressors for exposing the very victimization those oppressors imposed and still impose today. America as a nation is neither sympathetic nor empathetic to the African-American call for justice and equality. Even the mere discussion of the truth threatens the position of the racist or closet racist in his or her comfort zone. That is what stirs the anger inside them when they are faced with critical race theory. They do not want to acknowledge their roles in the victimization of people of color in America, whether those roles are overt or covert, inadvertent, unintentional, passive, or aggressive. So when they look in the mirror, it is a painful reminder of what exists even today. And to African Americans, I say, you don't have to feel like a victim in order to still be one. 
When any group of people suffer victimization, the individuals are impacted just like the whole. If your people are victimized, so are you, whether you feel and see it or not. America's foundation was built on, quote, discovered land that was already discovered. The labor of African slaves, the murder of the land's indigenous people, and the rebellion of hypocritical British citizens who refused to follow the rules of England. The, quote, founding fathers still promoted in grades K through 12 as great men and patriots were actually men who refused to follow the rules in their own land, so they stole someone else's then hypocritically imposed their will on the inhabitants and the slaves they brought here. Where is the greatness in this? America is alive today, alive but not well, and the foundation of any living thing is always its roots. The poison roots of an apple tree will produce poison limbs, which in turn will bear poison fruit. No matter how good it looks, how much time passes, how it tastes, or how the fruit wants to ignore its roots. The roots began long ago, but the apples are today. Whatever is in the roots is in the tree, and whatever is in the tree is in the fruit, especially when that tree is planted in stolen ground and the blood cries out from that ground as a testimony against it. Truth cannot be killed, only temporarily concealed. To those who oppose critical race theory, what are you afraid of or what are you hiding? Racists produce racists then and now. Today, corporation after corporation benefits from all that free slave labor that people want to just leave in the past. A stolen harvest of sorts. And from oil fields to crops, quote, white America has reaped a harvest that it never sowed. All the while, and even to this day, denying equality to those whose ancestors sowed those very fields across America. But now, because so many of the descendants of the perpetrators do not want their children to hear about what their ancestors did and what still goes on today, they don't want it even discussed for the purpose of critical thinking in schools. Wake up, people, because racism did not go anywhere just because it changed form. Trading in a white sheet for a business suit an auction block for a court system, in a plantation for a prison. A side note before some of you try to say I am a bitter victim who does not believe in personal responsibility. I grew up in a loving two-parent middle-class household where both parents worked full-time and they were married for 54 years until my father passed away. I attended a top African-American public high school as an AP student, then a university that was 85% white. My friends were of all colors and ethnicities. I went on to work in corporate America, own a small business, and become a director of public safety. My friends of all colors are law enforcement attorneys, college professors, those who never went to college, and many in between. Likewise, I dated women of various colors and ethnicities, and I do not claim to be a hopeless, helpless victim of racism holding me back. I have a strong sense of worth, ethnic and spiritual identity. I am not even a Democrat. I am a social and fiscal conservative. Though I have not directly been personally oppressed, I still recognize the truth of critical race theory. Now back to the issue at hand. So let's see how this is supposed to work. You give us Obama and we are supposed to be good little N-word slaves. 
You give us Kamala and we are not supposed to speak of injustice, systemic racism, and discrimination. You let Black Lives Matters go on for a few years until you pay off the founders and we are supposed to smile and dance a jig. You allow black mayors and police chiefs and we are supposed to forget what happens every single day to people of color because they are people of color. If you ask the Jewish community to settle for any of that, they would be outraged. If you ask the LGBTQ community to settle for that, they would not stand for it. Even if you ask the feminists not to voice their issues, they would not stand for it either. But the good old N-words just need to be quiet. Well, I won't. The truth hurts, especially when it is still the truth today. And you have to wonder if the same people complaining about critical race theory, CRT, also complained about Darwin's theory of evolution, a theory taught in K-12 through schools for as long as most of us can remember, a theory taught as if it was fact, a theory with parts disproved and parts never proven. I see two major groups emerging to be disgusted by CRT. The first is Caucasian people who would prefer to sweep the entire present-day matter under the rug. They don't want their children to know that racist history repeats itself during the Trump presidency, and that's exactly what overtly happened. They don't want their children to know that only a few years ago, Hispanic children coming to America, yes, illegally, were forcefully separated from their parents and locked in cages. They don't want their children to find out the facts about the disproportionate opportunities for African Americans versus Caucasians. Did it happen under Obama and Trump? Yes, it did, because that is America today, and Trump was elected because he represents the real America, with the white sheet or robe pulled off. Those who fear the truth don't want their children to realize that Asian Americans have been mistreated during the COVID-19 pandemic in America, not 50 years ago, but rather in this decade since 2020. They don't want their children to realize how the indigenous people of this land still struggle for generations due to what the, quote, pale faces have done and continue to do. So they would rather just label the truth as, quote, teaching or promoting racism and act as if these treacherous realities do not exist today. How dare the oppressors criticize the oppressed for speaking the truth and demanding that America look in the mirror. As long as history stays whitewashed, the Caucasians upset about CRT have no problem. But racism, degradation, profiling, and oppression are not just history. They are all alive and well today. As long as the contrib contributions of so many African Americans in America are devalued, minimized, ignored, undervalued, misplaced, replaced, and excluded out of the history books, all of the so-called, quote, patriotic Americans are content and don't seem to complain about that. As long as George Floyd is a black man being killed on TV, the racist Caucasian Americans, not every white person, don't feel the need to be outraged, show up at rallies, and stand against racism. Denzel and Holly didn't get their top awards until they both played black trash without morals in Training Day and Monsters Ball. Yet there they were, smiling at the podium for Massa. Wake up, people. African-American children disappear, or their organs do, 
but let John Benet Ramsey disappear and the Caucasian community loses it. All life is not equal in America. The second group against the CRT is those African Americans who have been assimilated so much that they live in denial about the racist world around them. They actually believe they are fully accepted as equals by the Caucasian community around them. Really? How many of their Caucasian friends would date them or be okay with their children dating? African Americans in denial think their personal experiences determine reality. Wrong. And even if their reality is based on their personal experiences, it is not built on the overall facts, the data, the evidence, and the totality of the black experience in America. To them, I say the totality of reality is not determined by what you drive, where you live, and how many of the master's breadcrumbs you are allowed to place in your bank account. To them, I also say, quote, Coonery is alive and well. Why didn't I say Uncle Tom is alive and well? Because far too many of you who have not even read Uncle Tom's Cabin still think Josiah Henson was a sellout and traitor to his own people. Wrong again. Read the book. Then read the Willie Lynch letters. Am I a racist? Not at all. I'm a realist. I'm a truth seeker. I'm a researcher who looks at the past and the present exposing the bad actors and perpetrators in the process. I don't hate America. I feel sorry for it and the denial for which it stands. So many Americans pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. What does that flag stand for? Freedom? Whose? Home of the brave? Was it brave to flee England instead of staying there to confront the problems? Victory? Whose? Pride? Is America proud of its history and how its origin came about? What does the Republic stand for if it will not correct its past and present sins? Liberty and justice for all? Is that what Breonna Taylor got? Is that what George Floyd got? Is that what the racists were trying to promote when they hunted down Ahmed Arbery and killed him? And the list goes on, from outright murder to discrimination, profiling to disproportionate and mass incarceration, to judicial bias. Institutional racism, to HBCU segregation in disguise, inadequate education to brainwashing, and I could spell it all out for weeks. Clearly, critical thinking demands examination of critical issues, not suppression of them. And hiding the truth until you hope it goes away, or is not remembered as the truth anymore, does not make it magically disappear. To those who oppose critical race theory, what are you afraid of being opposed? Embedded racism is alive and well in the very veins of America, whether CRT is taught in K-12 through or not. Are we supposed to deny it? forget about it, or ignore it? Why should we? Hiding the facts under the rug of denial will not make them go away, especially for the many people of color who live it every day. And waiting until our children get into college to teach them the truth, coupled with critical thinking on the tough issues and questions, only does them a disservice by restricting their mental growth on a sociological level. You can only delay the inevitable before the truth comes to light. 
Please watch, listen, and be aware of the opposition against CRT in your school districts and classrooms throughout the community. I could unpack all the data that proves present-day deeply embedded racism in America on multiple levels. But why? The evidence, no matter how strong, won't convince the racist or the brainwashed African-American in denial to wake up. And the evidence is not necessary for those of us who know the truth. Understand critical race theory and fight for it to be included everywhere. Because the truth of history is not just about the whitewashed version of it written, taught, and promoted through the eyes, power, and resources of the oppressor. Do not go quietly into the night. And do not be a good little slave. This next piece is published at thenation.com, written by Keisha N. Blaine. There's a long tradition of black educators fighting attempts to keep America's true history out of the classroom. One we can all learn from. This week, South Dakota's House of Representatives passed two bills, one targeting the teaching of, quote, divisive concepts, and the other aimed at, quote, protecting kids from political indoctrination. While neither bill mentioned the words critical race theory, it was clear what they meant. They followed just a few weeks after the Mississippi Senate passed Senate Bill 2113, another critical race theory bill authored by Michael McLendon, over the objection of black lawmakers who walked out of the chamber in protest. Both of these efforts, along with many others, are part of a nationwide campaign led by conservatives to supposedly rid classrooms of critical race theory, a term for high-level legal discipline that has been used as a cover to ban books by black and brown authors. While the obsession over critical race theory is a new manifestation, it represents long-standing efforts to keep black history and the perspective of black writers out of the classroom. For many conservatives, the attack on critical race theory is rooted in a desire to shield their children from the uncomfortable aspects of history and evade, quote, sensitive topics such as racism, white supremacy, and inequality. As this wave of anti-blackness and anti-intellectualism grows, black educators and their allies must be prepared to oppose these forces, building on a long tradition of black protest. For as long as white politicians have employed these tactics, black educators in the United States have vigorously resisted. Through a myriad of strategies, including creative lesson plans and the production of anti-racist books and articles, black educators have worked to counter the spread of misinformation and ensure that students have access to texts and perspectives that represent the diversity of the nation and the world. During the antebellum era, Black teachers in the North led the charge to ensure that black students would receive a quality education, despite having limited access to resources. These efforts often required conscious, vigorous, and sustained acts of defiance and protest. As historian Cabria Baumgartner recounts in her groundbreaking book, In Pursuit of Knowledge, but black educators were willing to take such risks. In 1830s Boston, for example, Susan Paul taught at a primary school for black children where she intentionally included lessons on the evils of slavery 
in the significance of abolition. Paul brought her students to meetings of the New England Anti-Slavery Society, an interracial abolitionist organization founded in 1832. She also encouraged her students in the Boston Juvenile Choir to perform songs that extolled abolitionist ideas. Her inclusion of abolitionist materials and her focus on her students' public comportment represented a direct challenge to the era's racist propaganda on the capabilities and qualities of black people, a mission she followed even as she faced threats of violence from white Bostonians at the time. Paul published the memoir of James Jackson in 1835 to honor a student of hers who had passed away from tuberculosis. In telling the story of Jackson's short life, the book also revealed Paul's pedagogical emphasis on Christian empathy as an opposing force to racial prejudice. Similarly, Charlotte Fortin, a black educator from Philadelphia, passionately resisted the spread of miseducation in the classroom and introduced, introduced an array of diversive materials to broaden her students' perspectives. One of the first black women teachers to be hired to teach in the integrated schools of Salem, Mass., Fortin joined the staff of the Epis Grammar School in 1856. Though she only taught in Salem for a few years, she was unwavering in her commitment to nurturing black students, and in 1862 traveled to the Sea Islands in South Carolina to teach black children who were recently emancipated by Union forces. Fortin used this opportunity to instruct her students about the life of revolutionary Haitian leader Toussaint Louverture. I told them about Toussaint, she explained in an 1864 Atlantic Monthly article, thinking it well they should know what one of their own color had done for his race. This determination to center black perspectives in the classroom as a counter to stereotypical representations of mainstream accounts guided black educators in the decades to follow. In February 1926, historian Carter G. Woodson, known as the father of black history, devised a strategy to address the failure to teach black history in classrooms across the nation. By first establishing, quote, Negro History Week, Woodson provided an avenue for educators to recognize and celebrate the history of people of African descent in the United States. In doing so, he disrupted educational norms shaped by white supremacy and anti-blackness. Woodson and members of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, the organization he had established several years earlier, created and distributed books, lesson plans, and other curriculum materials to aid teachers across the nation. Within five years of the program's creation, 80% of black high schools in the United States were celebrating Negro History Week. According to Jarvis R. Givens, author of Fugitive Pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson and the Art of Black Teaching. Woodson's mission as a scholar, quote, was influenced and made possible by the pedagogical work of black school teachers. These educators had instructed and prepared Woodson's generation after the end of legal slavery, and a new generation now risked their own personal safety to defy the accepted curriculum by implementing Negro History Week lessons, influencing generations of scholars and activists to follow. It is in this spirit that the famed scholar and activist W.E.B. Dubois published Black Reconstruction in America in 1935. The pioneering book, which would go on to shape future writing and research on Reconstruction, was a direct refutation 
of the false narratives emerging from leading white scholars. Black Reconstruction in America unequivocally challenged the racist Dunning School of Historians, named after William Archibald Dunning of Columbia University, and their portrayal of Reconstruction, 1865 to 1877. The Dunning School scholars, as Dubois explained, had portrayed the South as victims and the North as having committed a grievous wrong. Their writings on the subject treated the free and enslaved black population with ridicule, contempt, or silence. This framing of the ideals motivating Reconstruction and the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments as a mistake was further propagated in popular media, most notably in the 1915 film The Birth of a Nation. Dubois' Black Reconstruction offered an important counterargument that not only reaffirmed the evils of slavery, but also demonstrated the active role enslaved people took in liberating themselves. They were, as Dubois powerfully demonstrated, not simply the passive recipients of white actions, but agents in shaping their own destiny. This tradition coalesced into the dynamic field of black studies during the 1960s and 1970s. As Abdul Al-Kalimat, one of the founders of black studies, points out in the history of black studies, the field's growth is directly tied to the pioneering work of scholars like Woodson and Dubois. The work of black educators, combined with other forces including the civil rights and black power movements, as well as the vital intellectual space created by historically black colleges and universities, provided the catalyst for the establishment of black studies programs and departments. Freedom schools, such as those established by organizations like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the rise of black power ideology, fundamentally shaped black college students and challenged mainstream anti-black university curriculums on college campuses and beyond. Today, we are witnessing an effort to return to an era when black voices and experiences, along with those of other marginalized groups, were excluded from classrooms. The recent legislative and executive bans on critical race theory are designed to intimidate teachers and school districts from teaching accurate representations of American history. As the historical record reminds us, these attempts are not new. But we can draw inspiration from the long line of black educators and their allies who vigorously worked to overcome these forces in the past. And next up, from uh, critical race theory to um, how, how we see work and what work is and what a reasonable amount of time working is. Here's a couple stories on the four-day work week. First up is one by Anna Coote, that's C-O-O-T-E, and this is published at commondreams.org. In late July, they introduced a groundbreaking proposal for a 32-hour work week to Congress. Representative Mark Takano declared that Americans should have, quote, more time to live their lives and not just work. With workers returning to the job as certain COVID-19 restrictions were lifted, Takano noted many people will want to work fewer hours instead of going back to, quote, normal. For more than a decade, my colleagues and I at the New Economics Foundation have been arguing 
that it's high time to move to a shorter working week. As we show in our new book, The Case for a Four-Day Week, growing evidence suggests reduced work time is good for human well-being, good for the economy, and good for the environment. We've grown used to being told a four-day work week is too radical and can't be done, but that's all starting to change. Since COVID struck in winter of 2020, for many workers, going into the office to work for five full days a week has become the exception rather than the rule. The number of workers who now who know what it feels like to have more free time has risen dramatically. So is the number of employers who have discovered it's possible to reorganize staff time and still get the job done. Across rich countries in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, more than 50 million workers have been subject to COVID-related work time reduction and job retention schemes. Most of these changes were intended to be temporary, but have given both employers and workers crucial experience of doing things differently. At this point, it should be clear that the economy will not simply bounce back to the same place it was before we face this pandemic. Anyone concerned about the climate emergency knows that mustn't happen anyway. The time for tweaking at the edges of our economic system is well past. We need to move toward a deeper shift, not only in how the economy works, but in how people think the economy should work. The shorter working week is an idea whose time has come. It will help post-COVID recovery, and it's a strategy for the long haul, a foundation stone for transitioning to a fairer and more sustainable economy. As such, it's part of a broader policy agenda that includes raising hourly wages. Reduced working time must go hand-in-hand with measures to combat low pay. Shorter working time can reduce stress and anxiety and improve physical health. For example, a study by the World Health Organization and the International Labor Organization found that exposure to long working hours, around 55 hours a week, quote, is common and causes large attributable burdens of ischemic ischemic, ischemic, heart disease and stroke. The UK government reports that stress, depression, or anxiety account for 51% of all work-related ill health cases and 55% of all working days lost due to work-related ill health, with, quote, workload pressures routinely cited as a major cause. Reduced working hours leaves more time for other activities, including unpaid domestic labor, That means new opportunities are opened up for men to spend more time caring for their families and for women to get paid work on a more equal footing with men. No one imagines imagines these changes will come easily, but unless the opportunity is there, they won't happen at all. Our call for a four-day work week is shorthand. What we are ultimately after is a steady move towards shorter hours for everyone with different arrangements negotiated with employers to suit different needs. Some may want five short days rather than three-day weekend. Others may want more time off when their kids are young or sabbaticals to travel or train for a new job. Research shows people care about having control over their time just as much as having more time outside of the workplace. France was one of the first countries to introduce a statutory 35-hour week in 1998, which proved popular at first but public support fell away two years later when the law changed to shift control over the allocation of hours from workers to employers. Research by leading public health expert Michael Marmot 
has identified control over work and other aspects of life as a key factor influencing physical and mental well-being. There is also a strong environmental case for a shorter working hours. A study of the relationship between average hours worked and carbon emissions across all 50 U.S. states found those with longer hours had higher emissions. The authors conclude that, quote, working time reduction allows a society to reduce its impact on the environment. How does reducing work time reduce our impact on the environment? It's partly because the amount of free time we have influences our everyday habits. When we are constantly working, we need to buy a lot of convenience goods like processed meals. We want to get around quicker by car instead of bike, by plane instead of bus or train. When goods and gadgets go wrong, we are quicker to throw them out and buy new ones instead of mending them or getting them repaired. All of these factors ramp up energy-intensive consumption. Reduced working time also helps chip away at the notion that work is only rewarded by money, as if the only thing we should aspire to is to work more, to earn more, to buy more stuff. That is grossly unsustainable. It's time to shift the dial, to reward work with time, not just money, and to change ideas about what matters in life and what success actually means. A common objection from critics of the four-day week is that shorter working hours would be bad for the economy because it reduces productivity. In fact, it's been found that workers on shorter hours often increase their productivity, working more effectively in six hours a day than in eight, for example. When workers feel better in themselves, they can be more focused. They enjoy their work more and are often more loyal and committed to the job. People lose concentration in the last hour or so of a working day and take longer to complete tasks. A 2017 study of call center agents found that they took longer to handle calls towards the end of the day, which meant they were less productive. Conversely, when a car service station in Sweden switched its workforce from a 40-hour to a 30-hour week, the mechanics upped their productivity by 14% and profits rose by 25%. But let's not forget that in many jobs, output per capita per hour is not a useful metric. What counts is the quality and the outcome of the work. Caring and teaching are obvious examples, but there's also jobs in transport where it's not driving the bus faster that counts, but driving it safely and on time. Many jobs, from the arts to sports, have to be judged in terms of quality, not quantity, of output. The success of an economy must be measured in terms of human and planetary well-being, not just rates of growth. Reduced working time is good for the economy because it contributes to healthy society and a sustainable future, and it can improve the quality of work in many sectors. A flourishing society is one where we have time to care for each other, for our neighborhoods, our natural surroundings, and ourselves. It's not one where we are trapped in the fast lane of hard graft and escalating consumption. That way lies wrecked lives and a wrecked planet. Let's also not forget that what used to be considered, quote, normal was a dangerous and unacceptable arrangement. A 60-hour week or longer was perfectly standard status quo until trade unions began fighting for a 40-hour week more than a century ago. That fight continues today. More recently, there have been popular experiments with shorter working hours in countries like Sweden, Germany, and New Zealand. 
Governments have passed laws to support reduced working time in France, the Netherlands, and Belgium. And it's becoming increasingly common for trade unions to take up the cause. The Industrial Union of Metal Workers in Germany negotiated a 28-hour week with the Sudwestmetall Employers Organization in 2018. Representative Mark Takano's 32-hour bill is part of this international movement. Its chances of becoming law may be slim right now. The bill currently has 12 co-sponsors in the House, but it is moving with the tide of today's shifting attitudes and patterns around work time. The transition to a shorter work week is bound to start gradually and unevenly, with a combination of voluntary, negotiated, and statutory moves. The key to making it work as a progressive reform is to have a clear set of values. The end goal must be to benefit working people, reduce inequalities, and help save the planet. And this piece is published at weforum.org, written by Bin Cheng Mao. Flexible and hybrid working styles are the new normal following the COVID-19 pandemic. Working four days a week boosts productivity and is beneficial to individuals, the environment, and the economy. A four-day work week is a potential solution for new working models and could improve equality issues in the workplace. The COVID-19 pandemic has ushered in a new normal for millions of working people worldwide, characterized by a sense of previously unmatched flexibility. When this public health emergency comes to an end, and hopefully it will soon, working people are looking to apply the lessons learned during the pandemic to create better and more productive ways of work, such as hybrid models and flexibility. A four-day, 32-hour work week appears to be the best way to live up to this historic task, for it enhances the well-being of working people, while also preserving economic growth. Are four-day work weeks effective? Last year, I was elected president of a U.S.-registered public charity, and when the Omicron wave struck in December, I instituted a four-day work week for all our project teams at the East Coast Coalition for Tolerance and Non-Discrimination, ECC. In our surveys-based analysis at the end of the first month, our team noted both a substantial decrease in stress levels and a visible increase in overall productivity. It is not just individual organizations like ours that are adopting a four-day work week. Countries such as Japan, Ireland, and Iceland have also implemented the four-day work week on a significant scale. In addition, the world's largest economy, the U.S., has also seen its momentum growing, with nearly 100 members of the U.S. Congress recently endorsing the creation of a 32-hour work week. Moreover, the data available from large-scale experiments have provided evidence suggesting that a four-day work week is the future. Specifically, there are three primary reasons that make a four-day work week an excellent policy for economies. One, a four-day work week does not reduce productivity and it may even increase productivity. Productivity is undoubtedly crucial to a prosperous economy and opponents of a four-day work week often argue that intuitively one less day of work would result in decreased output. Nevertheless, an in-depth analysis conducted at Stanford has debunked this belief. 
More specifically, Microsoft Japan tested the shortened work schedule for its 2,300-person workforce for five consecutive weeks in 2019 and saw its productivity increase by a staggering 40%. Similarly, more recent trials in Iceland have shown that productivity remained the same or improved in the majority of workplaces. And researchers from the UK think tank Autonomy concluded that the Icelandic experiment is a, quote, overwhelming success. Why is this the case? In addition to disruptive new technologies being applied to the workplace, a four-day work week significantly increases worker contentment and teamwork and decreases stress levels. In the case of Microsoft Japan, the shorter work week led to more efficient meetings and happier workers. For example, the length of a meeting was cut from 60 minutes to 30 minutes, combined with the adoption of a five-person maximum attendance policy for each meeting. Employees also take fewer sick days as a result of decreased work-related stress. While the shortened work week allows companies to save on electricity, office supplies, and cafeteria costs. Number two, a four-day work week promotes equal rights for women and therefore creates a more equal workplace. A four-day, 32-hour work week would enable working people, regardless of gender, to have more time to fulfill childcare and other family and personal responsibilities without leaving the workforce. This would promote equality in the workplace, as women are presently much more likely to leave employment as a result of childcare responsibilities. A 2021 study published by the Center for Global Development revealed women globally are about three times more likely than men to take up child care responsibilities. In the same year, the U.S. Census Bureau reported that approximately 10 million American women are not in the workforce and staying with their young children. The number was 1.4 million before the pandemic. Given the circumstances, it can be deeply meaningful for societies to provide working people with a better chance at balancing career and working responsibilities and a four-day work week would go a very long way. Every member of a family would have eight more hours on a weekly basis to spend on their personal or family responsibilities, while the employers would see their employees remain in the workforce with higher degrees of happiness. At the same time, Stanford Business School has found that workplace equality has dramatically benefited the economy by contributing to growth over the past half century. In 2016, McKinsey Global Institute also released reports on the power of gender parity, indicating progress on gender equality could add $12 trillion of global economic growth by 2025. Therefore, a more equal workplace is not only a critical social justice issue, but also a consequential component of economic development. Number three, a four-day work week significantly reduces carbon emissions. A 2019 study conducted by UK-based researchers found that by adopting a four-day work week, British carbon emissions will reduce by nearly 20%, 127 million metric tons, by the year 2025. For reference, such a reduction in emissions is similar to eliminating all private cars from the roads in the UK. Across the ocean in the US, the state of Utah experimented with a four-day work week and projected a decrease of nearly 6,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions annually. A smaller carbon footprint resulting from a four-day work week 
is crucial to both economic prosperity and humanity's collective fight against climate change. Moreover, the European Commission has explicitly listed, quote, economic growth as a primary benefit of building a low-carbon society. Thus, implementing a four-day work week would be a significant step in the right direction. And finally for this episode, Howard Zinn. In February of 1963, Howard Zinn debated Fulton Lewis III about the House Un-American Activities Committee. On February 11, 1963, at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, Howard Zinn debated Fulton Lewis III, a journalist and member of the House Un-American Activities Committee, on the question of, quote, shall the House Committee on Un-American Activities be abolished? The opening remarks are provided in Howard Zinn's Southern Diary, Sit-Ins, Civil Rights, and Black Women's Student Activism. Author Robert Cohen notes, quote, Though this debate about HUAC may seem more a national rather than a Southern or Spellman issue, focused on an anachronistic congressional committee left over from the Cold War McCarthy era of the 1950s, HUAC was in fact very much alive in the 1960s, and was still impacting the lives and careers of radicals, ex-radicals, and liberals on campus, including at Spelman. In fact, shortly after his firing, Zinn noted that in the early 1960s, a colleague of his Spelman, a colleague of his at Spelman, nearly lost his job because of his refusal to cooperate with HUAC. Here are excerpts from Howard Zinn's opening statement and commentary in the debate. I only have 30 minutes, so I thought I would begin with the Stone Age. Mankind has gone through the age of stone and the age of bronze, and today we live in the age of irony. Probably in the 20th century, the ironies are more monumental than ever. But I'm not going to pick one of those stupendous ironies, nor one of the petty ones. Let's call it a middle-level irony. And it goes something like this. We, the American people, do not want to live in a communist state. The reason for this is not so much that we object to a planned economy, although many of us do. Not so much that we object to socialized medicine. There's some controversy about this. This may be a factor. Certainly not because we're afraid that if we live in a communist society, Coca-Cola will be replaced by Borscht. Or that we'll have anything against the Bolshoi Ballet or vodka. That's not it. Side note, a bit ironic reading this now when people are dumping their Russian vodka out there. And uh, if you purchase vodka and dump it, you haven't done anything to harm the uh, nation of Russia if, you, if it's Russian vodka and you purchased it. They got their money. We don't want to live in a communist society because we don't want to live in a situation in which the government or some agency of government is supervising our ideas and our associations to make sure that we hold no idea, believe in no political ideology, which is contrary to the official dogma. We don't want to live in a communist state because we don't want any government agency inspecting what we say, what we think, the associations we have, 
the paintings we paint, the writings we write, the books we read, the meetings we go to, the organizations we join. We don't want to be in a situation where people around us are watching us and may inform on what we say or where we go or the petitions we sign. We don't want to live in a situation where opposing the official credo may result in going to prison, where disagreeing with this governmental agency will send somebody to jail. And so in order to avoid all this, we set up a House Committee on Un-American Activities. And this committee, in order to prevent us from experiencing this, inspects what we read, looks at who we associate with, checks up on the things we write, the books we read, the associations we have, the meetings we go to, the wife that we married. It also employs paid informers to keep track of what people do, what they say, where they go. It also sends people to jail for disagreeing with the committee. Now, the premise of this irony is that we don't really mind if our freedoms are taken away from us so long as it's done by Americans. And also, that it is all right to take our freedoms away from us today because this will strengthen us to meet the trials of tomorrow. The House Committee on Un-American Activities was founded in 1938. It had two predecessors, the Overman Committee of 1999 and the Fish Committee of 1930. They had roughly the same object. In 1938, the House Un-American Activities Committee was created as an ad hoc committee. The chairman, well, I don't think I'm being unfair when I say that the chairman, Martin Diaz, was not selected from among the most brilliant members of the House. The chairman was Martin Diaz of Texas. This became known as the Diaz Committee. And you all perhaps know, well, it's not necessary to say anything about the Diaz Committee. It saved our country. It investigated Brooklyn College, which everybody knows is the seat of subversion in this nation. It investigated the Federal Writers Project, and writers are among the most dangerous people in this country. It investigated the Farmer Labor Party of Minnesota, and well, all you have to do is look on a map and see the strategic location of Minnesota. It's right next to Iowa, and not far away from Wisconsin. And then there's the Schlitz Brewery Company, which is right near, if the communists got control of the Schlitz Brewery Company, well... This committee became a permanent committee in 1945. The man most responsible for making it permanent was another one of our great congressmen, John Rankin of Mississippi. As an example of Mr. Rankin's incisive comments on communism, of which he was one of the nation's most assiduous students, July 18, 1945, on the floor of the House, John Rankin speaking, quote, these alien-minded communistic enemies of Christianity and their stooges are trying to get control of the press of the country. Many of our great daily newspapers have now changed hands and gone over to them. They're trying to take over the radio. Listen to their lying broadcasts in broken English. It's clear that the committee fulfilled its function. I listened to the radio yesterday for a while. I heard no broken English. All I heard were things like, I'm crazy about you, baby, because you're so sweet, or something like that. The radio has been cleared of communist propaganda, it seems to me, very effectively. Now, since then, since then, the IQ of the committee, since those days, since the days of Rankin, has gone up. But the values remain the same. It's important to take a look at the enabling resolution passed by Congress, which gives the committee its legal power. 
It's important to know this because it is the legal foundation upon which the committee operates. This is what the committee is supposed to be doing. And this resolution says that the committee is authorized to conduct investigations, quote, into the extent, character, and objects of un-American propaganda activities in the United States, and two, the diffusion within the United States of subversive and un-American propaganda that attacks the principle of the form of government as guaranteed by our Constitution. I want you to note that both requirements are that propaganda be investigated. No one on the committee, incidentally, as far as I can see, has given a very satisfactory answer to the question of exactly what is un-American propaganda. What is American propaganda? What is subversive? What is unsubversive propaganda? Diaz in the good old days said that if you didn't believe in God, this was an example of un-American thinking. And if you believed in a planned economy, this was an example of un-American thinking. The most recent definition I've seen was given by the chairman, Congressman Francis E. Walter, in 1961. This was on the Youth Wants to Know television program, who, in response to a question from a young student, said, quote, Sir, for our own information, could you tell us what is considered un-American by your committee? Walter, well, any activity that strikes at the basic concept of our republic. That's a good, clean answer isn't it? Any activity that strikes at the basic concept of our republic. What is the basic concept of our republic? Well, I will offer my own answer. The basic concept of our republic, I think, is that no government agency has a right to say what is the basic concept of our republic, because the principles of American democracy are changing things. They are hammered out on the anvil of experience. They are debated and redebated, and they engage in a kind of dynamic process of reverberation of opinion and atmosphere of freedom. And they're not subject to the kind of vague or ultra-specific definition which the House Un-American Activities Committee enjoys giving. The House Un-American Activities Committee is engaged in things which are not called for by its enabling resolution. The picture given by the committee of one that just draws up plans for legislation, dealing with sabotage, and so on. It's protecting our security and all of this. Why does a committee which is concerned with this investigate teachers? I'd like to know how Lloyd Barenblatt teaching on the faculty of Vassar College is a military threat by way of sabotage, overthrow the government by force and violence, espionage, or anything like that to the United States. I'd like to know how those 100, I stand corrected, did you say 101, 103, whatever it was. I'd like to know how those 100-odd teachers in San Francisco represent in California, represent this kind of threat to the United States. I'd like to know how Pete Seeger, who was called before, ever hear of Pete Seeger? He's a folk singer. He was called before the House on Un-American Activities Committee, and I would like to know in what way Pete Seeger is a threat to the national security of the United States. This is what bothers me. If the committee confined itself to ironing out those little sophisticated frills on existing legislation connected with sabotage, espionage, and violent activity, that would be fine. But that would be a completely different kind of committee. That's not the way this committee operates. Read through the hearings of this committee. 
it will say with all the niceties and with all the changes and all the improved procedures, it is not a very nice committee. It treats friendly witnesses in a friendly way. I mean, let them talk as much as they want. It treats unfriendly witnesses in a different way. I wouldn't say that there's any real freedom of speech before the committee. My objections to the committee, in short, are not titling ones. They don't have to deal with procedure. They're really not as based on whether somebody has right of counsel, although that's important. I think people should also be allowed cross-examination of witnesses before the committee. There's something fundamentally wrong with the committee, and that is the committee is set up, and the sin derives from its birth, the committee is set up to investigate propaganda activities. And in a free nation, no committee should be set up which is concerned with speech or writing or thought or association. This is a job, if anybody is interested in countering propaganda, this is a job for private organizations. And as a matter of fact, in a democracy, this is what happens. Private individuals and organizations, like the Young Americans for Freedom, have a perfect right to counter all the propaganda that they come across. And in the free market of opinion, the various propaganda is supposed to collide and out of it, the truth is supposed to come. And this is a democracy, not the government setting itself up in the business of deciding what is false propaganda, what is true propaganda, what kind of propaganda should be allowed, what kind of propaganda should not be allowed. And as I read through that, it's all about the heavy hand of government controlling speech, controlling what people think, controlling what, uh, what people say, controlling what people do, controlling the art of people so that other people can't hear those messages. And that's, to bring it back to the start, what the overreaction to the teaching of true history in the U.S. education system is all about. This overreaction by which many, many state legislatures are banning the teaching of actual historical facts in the schools because they don't want their children to know and understand that racism is endemic in the foundation of our country and that it's not over it's not in the past if they don't even know it was in the past they can't understand how it is connected to the the present they can't understand why that racism persists so heavily why our institutions are are interwoven the foundation of our institutions are just embedded with these racist notions and rules and laws and practices. If you don't know about the history, it's harder, much harder for you to understand about the reality of the present. We need to fight hard against our government, which supposedly stands up for freedom and supposedly stands up for free speech, but it never has. It's always been one of these grand myths of the United States that we somehow stand for for what is right we somehow stand for freedom of speech we somehow stand for equality when it never has been so 
our Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Well, first of all, it's extraordinarily sexist to start. But secondarily, they, they had no such illusion that that was the truth. They did not believe it. They did not believe male Indians were equal. They did not believe male slaves, uh, enslaved Africans, people stolen from Africa and brought to the United States to work as slaves. They did not believe they were equal. They did not believe any other minority population was equal. Yet they, they created this grand myth of our history by writing in the Declaration a, a phenomenal lie at the time that none of the actual practices of the time um, were supportive of. They embed this into our Declaration of Independence, and then that grand myth is allowed to build and build and build through the persistent education system. Every student in the United States of America, if they paid a little bit of attention, they know that the Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and they believe that that was the reality of the foundation of our country because they're only told, told this narrow, narrow lie to build their understanding of our history upon. So we have to continue to fight like hell, like all those black teachers have done in history and like all of the folks are doing now to fight against what is unfortunately a very popular and seems to be a relatively successful effort to diminish some of those small gains in in teaching a, a more balanced version of history out there so keep up the fight keep up the struggle until we win and that'll wrap up this episode of you can't be neutral Remember, you can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can go to youcan'tbeneutral.com to check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral. And you can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. This is Paul Robeson's testimony in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. This is your moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. Now, Do Mr. I, uh, Robson. Do I have the privilege of asking who's addressing me? I'm Richard Arons. What is your position? I'm director of the staff. Did you file a passport application in July 2, 1954? I filed about. 25 in the last few months. In July of 1954, were you requested to submit a non-communist affidavit? Under no conditions would I think of signing such an affidavit. It is a contradiction of the rights of American citizens. Are you now a member of the Communist Party? Oh, please, please, please. Please answer, will you, Mr. Robeson? What is the Communist Party? What do you mean by that? Are you now a member of the Communist Party? Would you like Party? to come to the ballot box when I vote and take off the ballot and see? Mr. Chairman, I respectfully suggest the witness be directed to answer the question. 
You are directed to answer the question. I invoke the Fifth Amendment and forget it. I respectfully suggest the witness be directed to answer the question whether, if he gave us a truthful answer, he would be supplying information which might be used against him in a criminal proceeding. You are directed to answer, Mr. Rogan. In the first place, wherever I have been in the world, the first to die in the struggle against fascism were the communists. I laid many wreaths upon the graves of communists. That is not criminal. Chief Justice Warren has been very clear that the Fifth Amendment does not have anything to do with the inference of criminality, and I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Have you ever been known under the name of John Thomas? Oh, please, does somebody here want me to put up a perjury someplace? John Thomas, my name is Paul Robeson, and anything I have to say, I have said in public all over the world, and that is why I'm here today. Mr. Chairman, I ask that you direct the witness to answer the question he's making a speech. I ask you to affirm or deny the fact that your Communist Party name was I John Thomas. I the Fifth Amendment. This is really ridiculous. The witness talks very loud when he makes a speech, but when he invokes the Fifth Amendment, I can't hear him. I have medals for diction. Uh, I can talk plenty loud. Will you talk a little louder? I invoke the Fifth Amendment loudly. Sir, who are Mr. and Mrs. Vladimir Nikiev? I McKeever? invoke the Fifth Amendment. Do you know a Manning Johnson? I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Do you know Gregory Kaifetz? I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Do you know a Max Jurgen? I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Max Jurgen. Why don't you have oath? these people here to be cross-examined? Could I ask whether this is legal? This is not only legal, but usual. By unanimous vote, this committee has been instructed to perform this very distasteful task. To whom am I talking? You're speaking to the chairman of the committee. Mr. Walter? Yes. The Pennsylvania Walter? That is right. Representative of the steel workers? That is right. And the coal mining workers? That is right. Not United States steel by any chance. Our great patriot. That is right. You are the author of the bills that are going to keep all kinds of decent people out of the country. No, only your kind. Colored people like myself? and you would let in the Teutonic Anglo-Saxon stock. We are trying to make it easier to get rid of your kind, too. You don't want any colored people to come in. Could I be allowed to read from my statement? Will here? you just tell this committee, please, while under oath, Mr. Robeson, the communists who participated in the preparation of that statement? Oh, please. The reason I'm here today, from the mouth of the State Department itself, is I should not be allowed to travel because I have struggled for the independence of the colonial peoples of Africa. The other reason I'm here today, again, from the State Department and from the record of the Court of Appeals, is that when I am abroad, I speak out against injustices against the Negro people in this land. That is why I'm here. I'm not being tried for whether I'm a communist. I'm being tried for fighting for the rights of my people who are still second-class citizens in this country, in this United States of America. My mother was born in your state, and my mother was a Quaker. And my ancestors, in the time of Washington, baked bread for George Washington's troops when they crossed the Delaware. My father was a slave. I stand here struggling for the rights of my people to be full citizens in this country. And we are not. We are not in Mississippi. We are not in Montgomery, Alabama. We are not in Washington. We are nowhere. And that is why I am here today. You want to shut up every Negro who has the courage to stand up and fight for the rights of his people, for the rights of workers. And I have been on many a picket line for the steel workers, too. And that 
is why I'm here today. Would you tell us whether or not you know Thomas W. Young? I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Thomas W. Young is a Negro president of the Guide Publishing Company. I'd like to read you his testimony, quote, Paul Robeson has no moral right to place in jeopardy the welfare of the American Negro to advance a foreign cause. In the eyes of the Negro people, this false prophet is unfaithful to their country, and they repudiate him, close quote. Do you know the man that said that? I invoke the Fifth Amendment. Now, can I read my statement? It is a sad and bitter comment. While you were in Paris in 1949, Mr. Robeson, did you tell an audience the American Negro would never go to war against the Soviet government? May I say that is slightly out of context. May I explain to you what I did say? I remember the speech very well. 2,000 students who came from populations that would range to six or 700 million people asked me to say in their name that they did not want war. No part of my speech in Paris says 15 million American Negroes would do anything. I said it was my feeling that the American people would struggle for peace. And that has been since underscored by the President of these United States. Now in passing, I said... Do you know any people who want war? Listen to me. I said it was unthinkable to me that any people could take up arms in the name of a man like Senator Eastland of Mississippi against anybody. Gentlemen, I still say that. This United States government should go to Mississippi and protect my people. That is what it should do. I lay before you, sir, an article. Quote, I am looking for full freedom, unquote, by Paul Robeson in The Worker. July 3rd, 1949, quote, I said it was unthinkable that the Negro people of America or elsewhere could be drawn into war with the Soviet Union. I repeat it with a hundredfold emphasis, they will not, close quote. And gentlemen, they have not. It is clear that no Americans are going to go to war with the Soviet Union. While you were in Stockholm, did you make a little speech? I made all kinds of speeches. Let me read you a quotation. Let me listen. Do so, please. I am a lawyer. It would be a revelation if you would listen to counsel. In good company, I usually listen. But you know, people wander around in such fancy places. You said, Mr. Robeson, and I quote, I belong to the American resistance movement, which fights against American imperialism, just as the resistance movement fought against Hitler. Just like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman were underground railroaders and fighting for our freedom, you bet your life. I have to insist that you listen to these questions. I am listening. I quote further, why should the Negroes ever fight against the only nation in the world where racial discrimination is prohibited and where the people can live freely? Never. They will never fight against either the Soviet Union or the people's democracies, close quote. Did you make that statement? I do not remember, but what is perfectly clear today is that 900 million people, other colored people, have told you they will not. 400 million in India and millions everywhere have told you that. Witnesses answer the question. He doesn't need to make a speech. Did you write an article that was published in the USSR Information Bulletin? Yes. Quote, I want to emphasize that only here in the Soviet Union did I feel that I was a real man with a capital M, close quote. I would say, what is your name? Errant. I am quite willing to answer the question. When I was a singer years ago, and this, this you will have to listen to. I am listening. I am a bass singer, so for me, it was Chalyapin, the great Russian bass, not Caruso the tenor. I learned the Russian language to sing their songs.
I wish you would listen now. Mr. Chairman, I ask you to direct the witness to answer the question. Just be fair with me. I ask for order. The great poet of Russia is of African blood. Let us not go so far afield. It is important to explain this. Did you make that statement? When I first went to Russia in 1934. Did you make that statement? When I first went to Russia in 1934. Did you make that statement? In Russia, I felt for the first time like a full human being. No color prejudice like in Mississippi. No color prejudice like in Washington. It was the first time I felt like a human being. Well, I do not feel the pressure of color as I feel it in this committee today. Why do you not stay in Russia? Because my father was a slave, and my people died to build this country. And I'm going to stay here and have a part of it just like you, and no fascist-minded people will drive me from it. Is that clear? You are here because you are promoting the communist cause. I am here because I'm opposing the neo-fascist cause, which I see arising in these committees. Jefferson could be sitting here, and Frederick Douglass could be sitting here. Eugene Debs could be sitting here. Now, what prejudice are you talking about? You were graduated from Rutgers, and you were graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. I remember seeing you play football at Lehigh. There was no prejudice against you. Just a moment. This is something I challenge very deeply, that the success of a few Negroes can make up for $700 a year for thousands of Negro families in the South. My father was a slave. And I have cousins who are sharecroppers. I do not see success in terms of myself. I have sacrificed hundreds of thousands of dollars for what I believe in. While you were in Moscow, Mr. Robeson, did you make a speech lauding Stalin? I can't remember. Have you recently changed what the mind about Stalin? What Stalin, gentlemen, is a question for the Soviet Union. And I won't argue with a representative of the people who, in building America, wasted the lives of my people. You are responsible, you and your forebears, for 60 to 100 million black people dying in the slave ships and on the plantations. Don't you ask me about anybody. Please. I'm sure you wouldn't want to discuss with us the slave labor camps in the Nothing Soviet Union. Nothing could be built more on slavery than this society, I assure you. I would invite your attention to the Daily Worker of June 29, 1949, with reference to a get-together with you and Ben Davis, formerly communist councilman in New York. Do you know Ben One Davis? One of my dearest friends. He is as patriotic and American as can be. And you, gentlemen, are the non-patriots. Just a minute. You are the un-American. The hearing is now adjourned. I think it should be. I've endured all of this that I can. Can I read my statement? No! The meeting is adjourned. It should be.